I don't know, six to eight months ago, I was in Sam's Club, one of my favorite stores. Uh, I was at Sam's Club, and I was with my two youngest kids, and so I had a four-year-old and a yeah, somewhat one-year-old at the time, and they were both sitting in the cart. You know, Sam's has one of those, like, double, like, both kids can sit right in front of you. And so I had the cart piled high full of stuff, and I was going down an aisle, and I, and I noticed that I'd missed something. I, and so I, you know, I left. I was just like, okay, I'm just going to leave this cart here, and I'm just going to very quickly just go to the next aisle, grab what I needed, and come right back. And so I left these two children there. I hope you're not listening to this. So, um, uh, I left these, so I just, you know, darted over just real quick. It was like, I mean, seriously, it was in my head, it was like four seconds. And so, like, it, it, get over, get this one thing. And it just so happened it was at the end of the aisle, and Sam's is like a mile long. So we go all the way down the end of the aisle, and I get, I get this item. And then by the time I have to get back, they have, like, closed off the aisle because they had some kind of forklift. And, uh, and so I have to go all the way around. And, and I'm then, so I get, or I finally get around to the aisle in which I'm, I see my kids at a distance. And there, <laughs> there is, this very concerned mother who is patrolling the area. She's looking around. Who is this guy? Like, I mean, and, and she's so concerned over this. And so I, and I'm, I'm close enough where I'm walking as fast as I can, but not like overly running or anything. And so this woman says, honey, where is your father? And, 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 and Leela Ray, just clear as day, says, I don't know. He left us. <laughs> You know, and so I walk up, and you know, all I wanted to do is be is is be like, hey, I'll stay here. You go find management. I don't know where this guy is, and so I, I, mean, I don't want I don't want to claim my identity to this problem. I wanted to avoid the stank eye that I was about to get. Right. So, uh, and, and so sometimes we have with our identity kind of causes us some concern, right? We want to terribly identify ourselves uh, to bad things, and so you know, for for me, we're talking about this idea of identity. For me, I mean, I am a son. I'm a brother. I'm a husband. I'm a father. At one time, I wanted to be in my younger years professional athlete that turned into a policeman, and uh, then I, want, I wanted to be a, a businessman, and at one time I wanted to be, and I'm not really sure, an actor, uh, and, uh, and so and now, I'm, now I'm a pastor. That's how most people know me. Uh, that's my identity to most folks, and I'm, I'm a pastor. Um, now, for many of us, identity is a little bit tough because here's why, because life changes, um, and, and usually once we figure out who we are and the identity that we're living in, once we figure that out, life changes and then we're something else, right? Uh, and so once we, once we figure out how to be a teenager, we're no longer a teenager anymore. We're into our 20s. And then, you know, we get married and, you know, the first couple years of marriage are a little bit rocky. And we figure out finally how to be married and all of a sudden we have to be parents. And then we have to figure out how to be parents of kids. And, you know, once we like, kind of find our identity in being a mom or a dad, we finally figure that one out, then they're teenagers, right? And then it, that's a very short period of time, right? And then it's like, okay, I've, I've finally become an expert in teenagers. If you are, let me know. Okay, um, it finally become an expert in that, and then, and then they move on, and they're no longer in your house anymore, and you've got to figure out another identity. Like, identity is, is, is tough, to grab onto. It's hard. And, you know, in our, in our world, because identity is so ever-changing, our culture has just embraced the fact that it changes all the time. And so we've just decided, oh, we're just going to change our identity all the time. And we're just going to decide what it is. And that's why we've, uh, in our culture, we've, we've come up with this concept of self-identifying. Whatever we want to be, we can be, even if it doesn't match up with our own biology, right? Uh, and so we, we decide, okay, I, 
I think I'm just going to make up my own race. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not white or I'm not black. I'm going to be something else. You know, I can just make up whatever I want to be, right? There's ladies in this audience who, you know, they've been 21 for at least a decade, right? And, and so, and then, you know, there's, there's a lady in London. I read about this. There's a lady in London who has self-identified herself as a cat, I don't even know how that's possible. Then, of course, I mean, then, of course, on the news, you hear about this cultural battle all the time is people deciding that they don't want to be their gender, and so they self-identify as a different gender, right? And so there's, there is a huge identity crisis uh, going on in our culture all around us trying to figure out, you know, is there any type of objective source to our identity, or is it all completely subjective? Can we just, can we just decide what we are? Is there any type of objective source? Is there any type of thing that we can all say, yes, we agree on this one thing? And good thing for God. Good thing for God because God is this wonderful thing called he is unchanging or immutable is the big theological word that God has never changed. His character is completely unchanging. He knows, God knows who he is. He knows exactly who he is and he knows what he does. He knows what he knows. He knows you. He knows his creation. And he knows you exactly for what he has created you to be. Uh, And so scripture is going to give us insight into into who God is. And he also speaks about who we are. And he tells us who we are. And the the scripture gives us an objective source for identity. In a world that's ever-changing of people who want to self-identify to whatever they want, the scripture actually tells us a lot of things about who we are. And so this, um, this whole uh, series, it's going to be eight weeks total, uh, this whole series is derived after a passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, you don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen because I told you guys to t- turn to Ephesians. But in 1 Peter, this, I want to give you the overarching Scripture for this whole series uh, because I think it's going to be helpful. Uh, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and we're going to read through verse 12. Here we go. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Right there, he gives like four different things of who we are. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, so he's going to tell you what you're not. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Another thing that we have received of who we are. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's another identity, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what you saw in there is a bunch of different identities that we're going to be working through over the next couple weeks. He says, you are a kingdom of priests. You are, you are friends of God. You are God's people. You are sojourners and exiles in this world. I mean, so he lists out a bunch of different things about who we are. Now, the one that I want to focus on this morning is this idea that we are a people of God's own possession. God's own possession, or in other words, we are God's people. Historically, in the Scripture, we recognize this as the people of God or the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Uh, so, in otherwise, so un- otherwise, he's called these people God's children. So, I'm going to make, make a little bit of a run here, okay? So, we have God's chosen possession, God's people, the nation of Israel, and then God's children. All of those things can, are kind of similar to one another. And so, we can understand that we are children of God, okay? Children of God. Now, childhood, that is an identity 
that most of us, probably all of us, can identify with. At one time, no matter how old you are in this room, you were a child and you are someone's child, unless you were hatched or, you know, something like that. But I don't think anybody in this room can claim that they weren't a child at one time. Uh, We were all born into this world and we all grew up as children. Now, from that point on, I realized that things diverged from there, but I think we all have this one objective reality that we were all at one time a child and we can identify as a child. Now, you might not feel like one now, and I get that, okay? You might not feel like a child now, but in the Bible, we have this idea of God's own possession and that we are his children. Now, I need some audience participation for a second here. I'm going to use your voice a little bit. We're going to do this several times throughout the sermon, so just be ready. So I want you to speak loud when I say, okay, we're all going to say this together. We're all going to say what our identity is just real quick, okay? So we're going to say, I am a child, okay? One, two, three. I am a child. Very good. You guys are awesome. First try. Way to go. Okay, so we're, we're, we're identifying ourselves. We are a child. Now, here's some characteristics of children. You guys know this. Children are vulnerable, right? They need to be defended. They are dependent for care. They, you know, if you just have an infant, you can't just leave it out in the woods, right? You have to care for this infant. You have to care for a child. They are dependent on you to feed them, to clothe them, to house them, right? And so children are both vulnerable and dependent. So remember, we're identifying ourselves as children we are vulnerable and dependent as well. Now, you see, they're also, especially babies, innocent and cute, right? Innocent and cute. Most babies are cute. Some are not so cute, but some are cute. And, and so you, you, you have this, we, we want to protect these lives at all costs. Part of our church's cause is to protect life as best that we can. And our hearts are wired that when we see children, we see the beauty of a child and why they're so wonderful creations of God. Now, Children, especially if you're a parent, you understand this, that children are selfish and narcissistic, right? Uh, They they just, I know that you don't like me saying that, but it's true, all right? I mean, they want what they want all the time when they want it, right? They are, we are born into this idea of a a sin nature. Now, we have to be disciplined out of that to make sure that we know what to do and what's right and wrong. Uh, and, and, and so we have to be trained with that. Um, but the, the truth is, is that, yes, we are cute and vulnerable and dependent, all those things, but we're also sinful. And the Bible talks about this idea of sin. So this is where we're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you're there, say, I'm there. Awesome. Ephesians chapter 2, this is kind of what he talks about, what the Apostle Paul is going to talk about in relation to our present state as children of God. Here we go. And you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the what? Sons. Sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the possessions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He uses these words like sons and children. He's talking about our state before Christ, before we knew God, before we literally became children of God. That's the biblical understanding of children. Vulnerable, yes, cute, yes, yes, innocent, but also sinful, that we have this sin nature within us, and that has to be cured somehow. 
Now, in a worldly sense, that's a biblical sense, in a worldly sense, let's take a look at our character as it, as it pertains to maybe a sociologist pers- perspective, okay? There's this guy, his name is Christian Smith. He's a, he's a sociologist, he's an author. He wrote this book called Soul Searching, where he did a massive, massive project on how teenagers viewed religion and God. Uh, and it was, it was, they, they surveyed thousands and thousands of teenagers all over the country. Uh, and this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and he published the book finally in 2005. So if you were a teenager or somewhere around there in the late 90s to early 2000s, let me see your hand. This is okay. This is you, all right? This is me, all right? And so, what he's, and so he's, going, and he's going to give us our identity after all of his research, and he's going to identify exactly what teenagers believe that they are. <clears throat> so our identity is this, and it's very kind of, uh, I guess, academic. Moralistic, therapeutic deists. That's what he says. Now, a child or a teenager is never going to come out and say, I am a moralistic, therapeutic deist, okay? Uh, and so he, he obviously is going to write about how this works. Uh, and and this, is, this is basically the religion of the millennial culture. So let me define some things. When he says moralistic, this is what he means. It means that, that this particular generation believes that people are basically good, free from the problem of sin. Yes, we do things wrong, but pretty much we're almost all the way good, and our job in life is to be fair, um, that we, are, we should be good to others and we shouldn't be a jerk to anybody, right? Uh, that all religions, because they teach this basic principle that most people are basically good, that, most, that it doesn't matter what religion you're a part of or your religious framework, as long as you are good to others and you follow whatever your religion says about being good to others and don't hurt people, then therefore you're in good shape. That's moralistic. Therapeutic is this. The central goal of life is to be happy. Is to be happy. To do whatever feels good to you. Uh, and, not, and, and yes, you can discipline yourself, but that's only for your own self-empowerment or encouragement. Okay, So you're always going to do what feels good so that you can, you can obtain your central goal, which is just to be happy. And this might be different for different people, so we can't judge people's actions uh, based upon uh, what they do. You have to do what feels good for you, and I have to do what feels good for me because that's the central goal of life, moralistic and therapeutic. Now, deist is a little bit interesting. We don't usually use that word. A deist is somebody who believes that God, yes, God did create everything in the universe, and he still is around, but he's just not that active in people's lives. He's not like in this great kind of play of life. He's not the director and he's not an actor in the play. He's more of a producer that stands way outside. And when we need him, we will ask for his help. That yes, God is there. I believe in God. I think I have to believe in God. Uh, And he said, that's the way that I was taught, but I only need him at certain times when I have a problem or if there is something important. And yes, God is important, but he's not as important as some other things in my life. And so we treat God as basically a cosmic butler, and we ring a bell when we need him, and he comes and helps. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That is what children come up with when they're, when they're, they're left to their own devices. And so we revel in this identity, we revel in it, and we, when we hear it just like that, it kind of sounds very immature, uh, pretty unwise, right? 
uh, pretty childish for that, to, to, to have the sovereign creator of the universe. You know, he's there and we believe in him, but we don't want him necessarily involved in our lives. So when we read things that Paul says like this, we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We don't think he's very far off. So we're in a tough spot. If this is us, if this is our culture, if this is our generation, then we're kind of on the wrong side of this whole God thing. We are pretty childish. We are pretty immature. And we need some help. We're pretty helpless if we're children. There's this fantastic story in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell it to you. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that the reason that you might not know it, and I may not have known it before I studied this, but um, there's a fantastic story, and it's a perfect display of our place and what needs to happen for us uh, to have a relationship with God. And I'm very sure that you haven't heard of it because of the name of the main character. It's very difficult to say. His name is Mephibosheth, Okay. Mephibosheth, all right? Now, I'm pretty sure pastors don't tell this story because they can't pronounce Mephibosheth. I can't either, okay? Uh, so in 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, there's this, this guy, his name is Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth is the, I can't even say it, um, uh, he is the grandson of King Saul. Now, King Saul was the king before King David, and King Saul, you know, lost his, uh, lost his whole kingdom, and he was at war with David and all sorts of things, uh, and so he was the grandson, and he lived inside of the palace and everything, uh, and, and, but then when Saul died and David became the king, the normal expectation when the new king or the new regime comes into power is that the new king will do away with or possibly even kill any member of the, uh, of the older ruling family, okay? That whoever it is, grandson, cousin, niece, nephew, it doesn't matter. If they're part of the old regime, the new king comes in and does away with them. That's what you're normally supposed to do. So David comes in in his inauguration and he does something a little bit different with Mephibosheth. In First Samuel, I'm sorry, Second Samuel nine one through three, it says, "And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake?" Jonathan was the son of Saul. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, "Are you Ziba?" And he said, "I am your servant." And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in his feet. Verse 6 says this, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he, this is why nobody ever tells this story. And he, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore, you to all, uh, restore to you all of the land of your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And this is the child of his enemy. Saul was David's enemy. He did not want David to come to the throne of Israel, and so he waged war against David. His entire household, his entire regime, the entire kingdom 
waged war against David. Finally, God decided that, to, to, that Saul and Jonathan were both going to die, and David was going to finally take the throne. And David finally takes the throne, and normally he would do away with everyone that had to do with the, with the kingdom of Saul. And the first act that he does is he says, is there anybody left of Saul's family? And they say, yeah, there's this one guy left, but he's crippled. And that, no, that's even worse. In that culture, you can't even be a servant at that point. You can't do anything. You're worthless in their culture. And David says, bring him. You are going to get all of, your, all of your grandfather's lands, and you are welcome to my table at any time you want. David doesn't kill him. He brings him to the king's table. Is that not our place in Christ? Where this is exactly the gospel story. It is our story. We are Mephibosheth, where we have no business. We were children, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. We, had, we have no way to help God. We're crippled in a certain way. And God brings us into his presence and says, I know that I'm probably supposed to kill you, but you're welcome to my table. And he adopts him into it. Ephesians 2 says it like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at the work and the sons of disobedience, among whom you once lived in the possessions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Best words in the Bible, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were crippled and an enemy, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. This is a picture of the gospel. But God, there is no work of our own. We have not been born into privilege. We have not earned it. This is adoption into the kingdom of God. Think about adoption for a second. Can you, as an orphan, let's just say that you are an orphan, can you just decide one day, hey, I'm just going to show up at somebody's house and they're going to adopt me? That's not how it works, is it? You can't just show up somewhere and say, hey, I'm part of your family now. That's not how Christianity works either. Adoption works when the father says, I'm going to adopt you. You are going to be recipients of my adoption. This is the exact same language that the Bible uses everywhere. And so we need some audience participation. We're going to continue this saying, or we're going to say, I am a child adopted. Ready? Say it with me. One, two, three. I am a child adopted. Yeah, exactly. Now, by whom are we adopted? That's a good question. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, famous verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Adoption is a gift. We have been given this adoption. I am a child of God adopted by whom? By a father. So once again, here we go. I am a child, of, I am a child adopted by the father. Say it with me. I am a child adopted by the father. Now Jesus comes onto the scene and he starts using this language of father. Before Jesus showed up, they really didn't address God as father. Jesus addressed him in these very personal ways. In his language, he used the words Abba, which means daddy. He told and taught the people, taught his disciples to call God daddy. That's how personal it was. 
Now for Jesus, I think that Jesus called, I think that Jesus called God Father or Daddy. I think he called him it for two specific reasons. One, because he always had. Jesus existed from eternity past, and his relationship with the Father was eternal. And so he always called him Father. And so when he became a human and took on flesh, was that going to change? No. He was going to keep on doing that. And so he just began to teach his disciples to do this as well. Now, I think the other reason why he started calling him daddy or father, I think the other reason is simply that he wanted to teach a very mechanically religious people that their father was loving and caring and personal. And so he began to teach them, you can call him something personal, not just mechanical. And so there's, he wanted to teach them several things about God's love, and I'm going to tell you what they are. So when we think about God as Father, we think of Him as His love is eternal. The Father's love is eternal. That He loved us before we were ever born. Every parent in this room understands this. That you love your children before they're born. Before they come into the world, you love them. They haven't done anything they haven't done anything for you besides great comfort for the mom, right? Or, or, or I'm sorry, great discomfort for the mother. Yeah, that was a man's perspective. Our, our role in this whole birth thing is laughable. Um, so um, anyway, but I mean, besides cause great discomfort for the mother, what has this child done to earn any type of love? Nothing. And this is the way that God acts towards his children. He loves us eternally, before we're even born. God has always loved you, and he always will. The Father's love is personal. The Father's love is personal. God not only loves you, he likes you. Now, that's different. We all know that, right? God not only loves you, he likes you. Jesus taught us to use this, this endearing term, Daddy. God is not far off. He's personal. For whatever reason, our culture has decided that, that we're deists, that we believe that God exists. Yes, God is out there, but he's not really involved. No, God is very involved, very personal. He is with us. The Father's love is intentional. God does not fall in love with you. He already does love you. It's not some kind of emotion like, you, well, like sometimes we love each other, that we fall in love and then we can fall out of love with somebody. It's not as if I was walking along one day and then God said, you know what? I think I'm falling for that guy, you know? I think I'm, I'm finding some emotion for that Charlie Swain. He's doing pretty well in this world, so I guess I'll love him. That's not how it works. God is intentional with his love. It's not raw emotion. It is just like David it doesn't matter. I will go, I'm going to bring you into my table, even though you've done nothing. We are Mephibosheth. That's who we are. He, we are intentionally loved. Think about what David did. He decreed. He said, is there anybody left? It doesn't matter who they are. I don't even know their name yet. Bring them to me. I love them. The Father's love is unconditional. God does not love you because of something. God does not love you if you do something. God loves you, period. God loves you, period. We see this in the parable, the most famous parable that Jesus told, the parable of the prodigal son. 
You have this son who decides that he wants to take everything that is owed to him from his inheritance and go, and he, he goes and parties and squanders it all. He finds himself in a pig pen. He comes to himself, and he says, you know what? My servants, the servants in my father's house have, have it better than me. And so he decides to go back to his father. And the, Jesus says that as the son was approaching his father's house, the father has such unconditional love for him that he's waiting for him. And when he son, sees his son on the horizon, this, the father runs to him and accepts him, doesn't ask him, doesn't even let him do his little speech that he's been practicing, but just walks up to him and begins to just embrace him and call him a son once again. God's love, he didn't care what he did. He didn't care what he did, didn't ask for, you know, what did you do with all the money? What were you doing? What were you doing for years without me? Just unconditional love. The Father's love is lastly, it's generous. The Father's love is generous. We went through a whole series called our Extravagant Series where we said that God has gifted us everything that we know and everything that we own, and we are to steward what God has gifted to us. Now the question is, who's taking care of us? He is. He is the person who is responsible for us. And so when God takes care of you, usually things fall into place. Matthew 6 You don't have to turn here, but this is Jesus. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They are neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? God desires to be responsible for you. Not just so that you can get good things. Now, God has gifted us, especially in this country, God has gifted us with pretty much everything that we, that, pretty much everything that we need. I mean, there's not a whole lot of needs right here in this room. Um, we have what we need, and God has gifted, us to a, gifted that to us abundantly. And so we have what we need. Now, secondly, God has gifted us, gifted us his son Jesus for our eternal salvation, which is a great gift that Jesus died on a cross for our sins so that we might be able to stand before God and that he will forgive us for all of eternity. That's a precious gift. So not only do we have life abundantly, we have what we need, but we also have life eternally. But wait, there's more, right? There's more than that. We are actually, when, when we become children of God, when we become sons and daughters of God, He says that we become heirs of the kingdom. That we quite literally become prince and princesses of the universe. And I know that language is weird, but it's true. Let me prove it to you. In Romans 8, 14 through 17, this is a great verse. This whole chapter of Romans chapter 8 is my favorite chapter in all the Bible. I fully believe it's the most important chapter in all the Bible, but that's my biased opinion. Romans chapter 8, 14 through 17, it says this, For all who are, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Remember that, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. His generosity gives us the abundance of life that we have. All the blessing, all the things that we have and own, those are God's and he has gifted them to us. 
Secondly, he has given us eternal life that we can know and hope for an eternal life in heaven. And then more than that, the weight there's more is we become sons and daughters of the king. That we're not just servants in the kingdom, we are sons and daughters of the king. That's different than just being a citizen, is it not? And if we treat God like a cosmic butler, we lose that. We lose that concept altogether. And we say, yeah, he's far off. He's out there. And, and, and if I call him, if I ring the bell, he'll come and help me. That's how a prince and princess of the universe does. When you have access to the king, when you are an heir to the kingdom, do we treat God like a butler? So how? How does all this take place? So how are we adopted? by the Father. There has to be some kind of mechanism, some kind of vehicle. Something has to happen in order for us to become adopted uh, by the kingdom. Now, so if some of you have, have walked through this, and others of you certainly know through relationships, that if you wanted to adopt a child, you have to, there has to be some kind of organization or some kind of vehicle in which you go and do that with, okay? You can't just show up to an orphanage or a third world country somewhere and just decide, I'm going to take this child home. You just can't, you can't do that. That's illegal. If you're planning on it, don't, okay? All right? All right, you, there has to be some kind of organization or mechanism or mediator in which you work through to adopt a child, DSS, whatever. It has to be something that you work through. In the same way, God adopts us through a mediator. There has to be something that God uses to be able to adopt us into his family. So let's read about it. And Jesus talks about it. John 14, 18 through 21 says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live and you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he, is, uh, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We are adopted by the Father in the vehicle by which we are adopted is through Christ. Christ literally, the Son of God, puts the Spirit of himself inside of us, and so therefore we are, we are now sons and daughters of God. And so one more time, audience participation, this is the whole sermon. I am a child adopted by the Father through Christ. I want you to say it. I am a child adopted by the Father through Christ. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. It is through the work and the, and it, the work of Jesus that we have access to the Father. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to indwell within you. I'm going to set up camp within you. I'm going to take up residence within you. And so when we talk about Jesus coming into our hearts, that's what we're talking about. That Jesus takes our place. And so when God, the Father, looks at you, if Christ dwells within you, if you have placed your faith and your trust into Christ, when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees his only begotten Son, Jesus. That's who he sees. 
And so the only one who's ever been accepted by God is Jesus. And so when we come into his presence, we come to a place where he says, you are loved and accepted because you are my sons and daughters that I have adopted. So what are we supposed to do with this? Here's a couple things just for you to think through. How am I supposed to apply this? What am I supposed to take on the road with me? Okay. Number one, these are pretty easy. Number one, trust. Trust. I recognize that in this room, there are those of you who had very good home lives, that you had dads and moms that loved you, and you had a good kind of nuclear family. I also recognize that probably more than half of this room struggled with that and did not have a loving, caring father in your house. Uh, or something went wrong somewhere. Uh, and so I recognize when I get up here and talk about how you're adopted by a father, that kind of gives you some very insecure feeling in your heart. And you're just like, I'm not sure I want to be adopted. I mean, my father was a jerk. I, I don't, that, that, that doesn't make me feel good. It like, make, makes me feel terrible. And I recognize that. And I, and I understand that a little bit. I mean, my father was fantastic. And so I, I live in the reality that I have a really great father. And I also have a a phenomenal heavenly father. But just know this, God is not a reflection of your earthly father. He is a perfection of your earthly father. And so you, I want you to know that there's something good to be found in this idea of a father, that we should not worry, that we shouldn't grow anxious, that we need to have hope. And you might even say, okay, it's really hard to trust in God. The reason why I keep him at an arm's distance, maybe a little bit away from me, is because life is still very hard. And why is life so hard? If God is so involved here, why is life so hard? And here's the reason. is because we're simply not home yet. We're simply not home yet. When I was in Haiti, um, one time I was staying at a house and there was another woman who was staying there and she was there, um, and she had been there for weeks and months actually. She, she goes back and forth. Uh, and she, every day she would wake up really early in the morning and she would go to an orphanage where two twin girls, Haitian girls, were there and they were her daughters. She and her husband were adopting them, and she, they had been adopting them for several months, and they had already been, uh, they had already been set, like there was paperwork that said, this is your mother, these are your daughters. And the only problem was the Haitian government was holding them up from getting a visa into the United States, and she wasn't allowed to take them out of the orphanage yet. She wasn't allowed to take them to the United States yet, but they had already declared that she was their mother, and they were her children. And they just weren't home yet. Now, I've never experienced this in my life, but I've talked to enough folks who are orphans and they, and they long for a home that they've never seen. That's our place. Why is it a struggle? Why is there pain? Because we long for a home that we've never seen. And we have been adopted into God's family and there's still going to be struggle until we get home. And so we need to trust in that. Second thing, obey. Your father knows what is best for you. If you're a parent, you get this. You know what's best for your children, and so you set rules and you set instructions. This is what's best for you. I'm going to set rules. So you have the scripture, and most people look at the scripture and say, it's just a bunch of rules. Yeah, it's a dad who loves his kids and says, here's what's best for you. Follow in these instructions. They're not bad for you. And so as we obey God, we understand more about his character. And then, number three, we get to reflect. Who do we reflect? We reflect Jesus. 
The more that we trust him and we obey him, we become a reflection of who, he, of who he is. If you are a Christian, God takes up residence within you, and little by little you become more of a reflection of who he is into that intentional love, that unconditional love, the personal love, this generous love of a father. You begin to reflect all of those things. And so we trust, we obey, and we reflect who God is in our lives as our Father. So what will it take this week? Is it the trust factor for you? Is trust the big deal? For me, trust is easier because I had a really good home life and I understood my dad was really great. Trusting God is not a hard concept for me. Obeying is a harder concept for me. And so where are you at? Is it trust? Is it obedience? What's that one thing this week that you need to put into action and think through? As we think about our identity, we're going to keep on going and walk through what it means for us to be followers of Christ and find our identity in Christ. It's not some subjective self-identification of whatever our culture decides of who we are and what we think we are. God has objectively decided what our identity is, and he's declaring that upon us. Are we going to reflect that? That's a good question. So we're going to move um, just at the end of the service today to, a, to an act of worship called the Lord's Supper or Communion. And, um, and so you'll see these elements on my right and left. And this gives us the opportunity uh, to remember something very specific about Jesus. On the night before his arrest, uh, Jesus w- took his disciples and he gathered them together for what's called the Passover meal. And he added two very specific things to it. He passed bread around, and he said, this is my body, and it's broken for you. And he broke the bread. It's broken for you. And so on the cross, we remember that Jesus was broken for us. As we mash this bread in our teeth, we recognize that the Son of God was broken for us, and our sins were the ones that broke him. Then he took a cup, and he said, he passed it around and asked them to drink, and he said, this is the blood of my covenant. This is the blood that will be shed for you that will cover over your sins. Later in the scripture, we find out that, that we, we, need to t- we need to celebrate these two elements. Celebration is a relative term in that we do remember and celebrate what God has done for us on the cross for our sin. And as we come and we take these elements, we remember what Jesus has done for us. And this as a church is something that we like to gather and do and um, come together and say, have a moment of reflection about our own sin. And then we have this, our lives are so different from one another. But then we come together in this one common idea where Jesus says, take these elements and remember me together all at one time. And so here's what I would ask. We're going to sing one last song, but, and I would ask as soon as I stand you up that you come and take one of the cups and take a piece of bread, bring it back to your seat. Have a moment of reflection upon maybe your sin, maybe you're weak, and see if there's anything in your heart that you need to confess to God. Um, The scriptures tell us that we need to come to this with a clean heart, so God will forgive you of your sin if you ask him. You might want to take that and just have a moment with God, and then just on your own time, just take the elements, and as you take them, remember Jesus and what he's done for you. Now, here's what I would ask. If you're not a Christian, if you've never had a moment where you've come to a knowledge and faith in Christ, I would ask that you just watch this happen, um, observe it, uh, and, and it'd be totally fine if you just stay right there in your seat. Nobody's going to bother you. 
but I would ask that if you're, if you're not a Christian that, that you may be wondering, you want to ask a question, what is this? How do I become a Christian? And start asking some questions. I would love to answer those questions and I'll be right over there on that side of the room and I want to answer your questions about how to become a Christian so that you can become a child of God. Um, so church, let's celebrate this together. Uh, let's take this Lord's Supper together. Stand up with me. Let's worship.